Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have a real treat for you. We have one of the emerging new heroes in the effort to um, reveal the damage and the dangers of the COVID vaccinations. And this is Dr. Robert Malone, who is uh, truly one of the most respected experts in this and that he is really the inventor of the messenger RNA vaccine. Uh, he is a, really a true insider. We have somewhat differing views with respect to vac vaccines. He is a pro-vaccine person and actually has received the COVID vaccine himself. Uh, but he actually developed the, the platform, the technology that allows the mRNA vaccine to exist. Uh, let me give you a short history. Uh, interestingly, he's new to the field with respect to engaging in the dialogue. Uh, earlier this year, he wrote a short essay uh, when he had a conversation, shortly after he had a conversation with a physician in Canada who was explaining some of his challenges and didn't realize there was something he could do. Then he reflected on it and discussed it with his wife, Jill, and they wrote this paper on bioethics, which catalyzed an interview with Brett Weinstein in June on his Dark Horse podcast, which is the first time I saw him and was so impressed with his uh, ability to articulate very succinctly and accurately and expertly as to what was going on. But for doing that, he was nearly instantaneously removed from the history books. He was taken out of Wikipedia and his uh, the pretty much all the his, the references of him inventing the COVID or not the COVID messenger RNA technology was removed, and it was the, the, the tribute was given to others. So he's uh, really got no horse in this battle other than to uh, tell the truth. Uh, he's a deep industry insider. He's got connections with the FDA, uh, Department of Defense, and he really knows deeply. The, what's going on. I, I kind of look at him as a converted scientist, it, it converted to um, a, 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 an investigative journalist now that he's reporting on the truth with respect to this topic. And there's not many people who've, who would have been better prepared. He's got 30 years in this field. Uh, really, he's truly an expert. So I am so delighted and excited to connect with you today. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Dr. Malone. Thank you very much. The first time anybody ever called me an investigative journalist, I don't know if that's a badge of honor or, or uh, um, something else. Uh, yeah, well, uh, these days, uh, it's kind of a dirty word, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll run with it. Uh, I have, Dr. McCall, I have, uh, as you say, been in the business a long time. And I have previously been a whistleblower uh, over the Jesse Gelsinger death. Oh, that's right. And uh, yeah, why don't you talk about you can, that? Because a lot of people aren't aware of that. So uh, I, but I generally try to stay below the radar, and and uh, I interact with the press mostly on background. 
have for many years uh, with a focus on trying to help them to get the stories right and understand the science. Uh, Jesse Gelsinger. So the background for that was that uh, Jill's thesis advisor, my wife, uh, her PhD advisor, Adel Shamu, uh, who's a bioethicist, uh, you know, card-carrying bioethicist at the University of Maryland, where we both were working at the time, was uh, also training me in bioethics, uh, part of my required training as a young faculty member and, and kind of uh, an extended training I took in the coursework with him. When the Jesse Gelsinger events happened, and, and I also have long, long been a deep insider in the gene therapy space, so I had specific knowledge of what had happened at Penn and the uh, um, ethical transgressions, shall we say, uh, that, that occurred, and an awareness, again, just like now, of the technology, and so I was able to make sense of things that otherwise were obscure for journalists and even other scientists. I spoke to, I went to Adel about what I knew. And he said, Robert, you have a, a ethical responsibility to uh, disclose what you know to the public. Uh, I did so knowing the risk to my career and that materialized. And I was a persona non grata in the gene therapy community after that. But I still feel okay. You know, I survived that. I survived the blacklisting. Uh, that's part of why I kind of went in a different direction with my career and uh, focused on government work and uh, biodefense and supporting the Department of Defense. So, what, what was the but, personal uh, interrupting? What was the personal cost for you for that whistleblowing venture? Oh, I, I uh, never got another grant. Uh, um, and, uh, from NIH, for sure. They still uh, seek me out to serve on study sections, often to chair large contract study sections. But my ability to participate in the gene therapy community, I became uh, persona non grata. Mm. And, uh, and uh, that was really the end of that part of my career and shortly thereafter, my academic career. So uh, it's all, you know, the... The lesson learned for me is that I'm able to be resilient mm -hmm. with, you know, together with my wife's support. And uh, another key lesson was that um, your friends will support you through times of uh, crisis if if you behave with integrity and 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 maintain your friendships and treat people with respect. And uh, there was a lot of I also had a lot of support for having spoken out and uh, taken a, a ethical high road on that um, and not compromised myself. Adel ended up uh, making hay while the sun shines. He ended up a key member in, in the uh, institute that Mr. Gelsinger set up, and, and I think he did very well out of that. So I'm not sure in retrospect uh, all the dynamics there, but uh, I, I went about my life and, and friends and colleagues uh, brought other opportunities to me, and and I was able to pivot without really too much disruption. So, uh, but I did I did leave academia at that point. Yeah, so you're no stranger to exposing the truth, or speaking truth to power, which you've been doing so well in the last month or two. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And and uh, I it's part of why I'm comfortable 
I, I, people tell me that I come across as, as balanced and calm. That for me, yes, this is uh, frightening a little bit. And I'm putting, once again, putting my career on the line. But once again, uh, many of my colleagues in the government are uh, uh, grateful that I'm speaking this way. They are not able to have a voice. Uh, because their jobs and and uh, the government policies about speaking out, uh, so it's it's a. Uh, but I got to say, uh, at some point I got to start making some money here uh, because my I've had to park my consulting business. All this has been pro bono, and it and it as you know it it chews up an enormous amount of bandwidth and time. Uh, but I, I yeah. think it's an important thing to do. Well, that's why I called you an investigative journalist, because not only are you participating in these types of interviews and podcasts, which are quite a few, but you also have a very active and prolific feed on Twitter, Twitter, sorry, that, uh, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> you see how much I use Twitter, but uh, the, uh, you know, and that takes some time to do. I mean, you have some really great posts. It's, it's a monster. Um, we went from... Uh, my wife had encouraged me that she thought it was time that I rekindle my Twitter account. I've been active and not active at different times. I'm not, a, I'm not naive on, on social media. I've been doing this for decades, uh, starting with uh, stock chat boards on Yahoo. And uh, she, she had said that she thought it was time for me to kind of reactivate my base account. And uh, at the time there was like a hundred uh, followers. And then then this uh, podcast of three old men sitting around the table talking for three hours uh, went viral, which blows my mind still, and uh, and globally viral. And uh, and the Twitter count is now over one hundred thirty thousand. Yeah, one hundred thirty like a month later. Yeah, as we're talking. So <laughs> I just oh, you're checking it more than I am. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there. It you have to feed the beast. You have to provide information and manage it you have to uh weed out the trolls from time to time it's like weeding the garden uh and you have to deal with that comes uh obligations in terms of being more careful about my messaging and what i post uh and but it's also provides um strength and legitimacy that has for instance played a key role in together with Steve Kirsch speaking to a LinkedIn vice president in, in overcoming the LinkedIn censorship when people all over the world started canceling their LinkedIn accounts because I'd been censored and writing directly to LinkedIn uh, consequent to their being aware of the, of that on, event on the Twitter account. That resulted in some unprecedented action by LinkedIn. I don't think I've ever heard of a company writing a letter of apology after uh, on delisting and deleting somebody. Uh, so that uh, Twitter, twi the journalists, as you say, the journalists all follow Twitter. They're all looking for mm -hmm. clicks. They're all looking for topic areas that they think will sell their newspapers. And I think they use Twitter as a way to, in, to discover trends mm -hmm. and a way to kind of troll in, in the sense of uh, sport fishing. Uh, for uh, for topics that uh, they could write on that would capture public interest. So LinkedIn reinstated you then? They did. 
and it and it took a, a lot of effort, uh, and my sins were um, profound. Uh, they were that I outed the uh, um, uh, chairman of the board of directors of of Reuters for also sitting on the board of Pfizer mm-hmm. uh, for cross posting the Wall Street Journal article on uh, vaccine toxicity risks, the editorial, and uh, basically for complaining about censorship. So they, they sent me my list of sins, uh, with six different posts that were to pretty much anybody's eye innocuous, which I then took and cross-posted onto Twitter. Uh, so that made the, revealed the absurdity of that. And then, uh, and Steve Hirsch called this vice president of LinkedIn that will remain anonymous and, and said to him, Hey, you know, this guy Malone, he knows his stuff, and and he generally gets it pretty carefully right. And furthermore, he he fact checks me all the time. And uh, uh, so uh, you probably ought to go back and carefully look at whether or not he actually made a misrepresentation, or is it just your algorithms or your junior staff uh, uh, misunderstanding what he wrote? What was fascinating about the list of sins that they sent me, the the list of posts. It had clearly been custom written on short notice uh, because it had a major typo in the heading of the email that was sent to me. So it wasn't a form letter. Uh, but there, then this cascade of, of resignations and protests started from people on Twitter regarding LinkedIn. And this culminated in a major news piece in one of the mainstream Italian newspapers. And uh, that pretty much pushed them over the edge. And, and they decided the, the the note that I received basically said, look, we don't have the expertise uh, to censor you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so but but if you if you cross a line, uh, we have the uh, right to summarily uh, delete you again. And so mind your manners was pretty much the messaging I got. Yeah. So, well, thanks for sharing that bit of censorship that was directed at you. Uh, what I want to go back and for those who haven't heard of your work before, just maybe give a brief discussion of your academic credentials and what makes you so uh, imminently well qualified to participate in the, in the dialogue in, in this area. Uh, I mean, briefly, you were an MD at Northwestern, which is uh, in my hometown of Chicago. And uh, I don't believe you formally got your PhD, but essentially you have a PhD equivalent, but for some reason that you can expand on, uh, only wound up with Yeah, I was in an MD-PhD program and I bailed out with a master's in lieu uh, because of, of all of the events that happened uh, at the SALC that is the foundation for this technology, but it resulted in a, a great big uh, bureaucratic fight of, largely over money and patent rights. And I just, mm. I came unglued and had to get out of the lab. And this was in the late 80s? Yeah, precisely. Um, yeah, so so Northwestern MD, uh, uh, master's degree from uh, Salk Institute, UC San Diego, bachelor's degree in biochemistry from UC Davis, uh, um, a fellowship, Giannini Fellowship in Pathology uh, at UC Davis, uh, a uh, Postgraduate fellowship in global clinical research at Harvard, uh, so the, uh, and um, numerous other training. Was an academic teaching pathology to medical students for about a decade at both at University of Maryland 
and uh, University of California Davis as an assistant professor and then as associate professor of surgery at Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences, uh, where I launched a, I never talk about this, uh, launched a, a major research institute focused on breast cancer and uh, high throughput screening uh, in genomics for breast cancer up in Western Pennsylvania. And then uh, I transitioned, I started a company called Inovio uh, based on laboratory findings that we had. We've had a, many, many discoveries relating to gene therapy and vaccines. This is this RNA story is just part of it. Uh, the, the use of pulsed electrical fields for delivery and starting Inovio. And then the uh, founders of Inovio uh, and my clients back in Norway uh, pulled back uh, when the planes hit the towers and left us high and dry. And a colleague uh, at the Department of Business and Economic Development in Maryland connected me with a startup company that had received the contract for managing all biodefense products for the Department of Defense uh, that was called Dineport Vaccine Company up in Frederick. And that's when I transitioned from being more of an academic to the advanced development world of uh, clinical research, regulatory affairs, project management, uh, compliance, quality assurance, all of that stuff that goes into actually making a product. And for me, it was a huge epiphany that uh, the world really didn't need more academic thought leaders. And I was kind of uh, wasting my time focusing on that. What the world really needed was that people understood the basic, the underlying technology and the discovery research world but also understood advanced development, which is the kind of drug development, highly regulated world. There aren't very many of those. So I set out to become really expert in that latter part and uh, worked with the government, particularly in biodefense and vaccine development for a couple of decades. And that brings me to the present. So I do have deep relations with the government. I, I've, uh, captured, uh, I think, a couple billion dollars in grants and contracts for companies that I've worked with and clients uh, from the government, from BARDA, from the Department of Defense, uh, and others. And uh, so I, I'm, and I've, I've done a startup focused on drug repurposing for Zika in close collaboration with the DOD. And uh, we had good progress with identifying repurposed drugs. And now, since the beginning of this outbreak, when I got a call from Wuhan from a colleague that's in the intelligence community saying, Robert, you got to get your team spun up. I've uh, been focusing on drug repurposing because I thought that was the best solution to mitigating death and disease in the short term while new drugs and vaccines were being developed. And we, the, the group that I've been working with is uh, just about to enter the clinic. Uh, we've, we've done, um, a case series in in our development work with the drugs we're working with, but we're just about to start IND uh, covered, uh, really phase three or phase four because they're all licensed off patent drugs, uh, both in the outpatient as a virtual trial structure and in the inpatient in the states, and then also an inpatient large inpatient trial in India. So that's that brings me to the present is. I'm a vaccinologist that has pretty deep credentials also in on the drug side, particularly in drug discovery, drug development, um, 
computational drug uh, analysis, high throughput analysis, that kind of cool stuff. Well, well, thanks for bringing us up to speed on your credentials and your current state. Uh, I would contend that you transition into this latter phase of your life into something that you felt was was better, you were better apt to do, and there was less qualified people to do it, and that it appears that you're transitioning to an area that there's even far fewer qualified people to do it, and that is really uh, expert cl- uh, academics who have a deep understanding of philosoph- philosophy and ethics. And it's, it's clear that one of your biggest contributions is the, is the commentary you're making on the bioethics of what's going on. So I wondered if you could share your views on the bioethics of what's happening and uh, you know how shocking it really is and what really what seems to be the catalyst that got you into this discussion. Well, thank you for taking that up and for that, um, the respect in your comments. Uh, I, I'm a deeply, both my wife and I are deeply ethical people. We've been married, uh, we're high school sweethearts. Uh, we try really hard uh, to live ethical lives and um, to help our fellow man, as well as uh, the animals in our lives. So that's just the place we come from. It's bedrock. We're not rich people. The logic here. So I had this uh, fascinating two-hour call with the Canadian physician that you alluded to uh, that poured his heart out about the situation in Canada that he's encountering both with uh, vaccine administration in primary practice and also in administering alternative therapies to outpatients, which generally have no therapies available. I mean, the the position is, is a bit shocking in the emergency rooms all across the world, it's basically, um, you know, you go to the ER and if your O2 sats aren't down pushing 80, uh, they say, well, go back out and come back when your lips are blue. And that's the essence of it. They don't really offer anything. So many physicians, including this gentleman in Canada, have been seeking alternative strategies and they've tested, you know, and, and, administer these various agents. Uh, We've heard of fluvoxamine, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. There's many, many others now, uh, including those that we're working with that seem to have therapeutic benefit when administered early to shut down this hyperinflammatory response. So he, he shared this and he shared the stories of multiple reports of vaccine adverse events that in his clinical judgment were clearly vaccine related and some of them quite serious and that the Canadian government would summarily uh, dispose of those as non-related even though in his clinical judgment they clearly were related and he spoke about the enticement of children in Canada with ice cream and the uh, willingness of the Canadian government to administer vaccine to children without their parents or guardians' consent after, after um, enticing them with ice cream cones and some of the other things going on in Canada that I just found shocking. This was all but, legal, right? Uh, as, this is legal in Canada. Uh, it is government policy. Whether or not it's legal, uh, the lawyers have got their teeth into this now, okay. and that will play out over the next few months, but it is government policy. Uh, so... Uh, a fine distinction, but I think not a trivial one. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
that, that, and it mirrors what we're seeing across the world where governments are taking liberties with uh, people's health and their rights without real legislative authorization to do so in most cases. So Jill and I are both trained in bioethics. I listened to this and, uh, you know, called the call off, finished the call at midnight, went to bed on Saturday night, and woke up Sunday morning, said, oh, I know that there is something I can do to help this gentleman. I can uh, apply my knowledge and Jill's knowledge of bioethics and write a lay press opinion piece relating to the bioethics of experimental vaccines under emergency use authorization. I have intimate knowledge of not only the emergency use authorization legislation, the, F the FDA policies behind it, I even know the people that wrote it. Uh, so uh, we, we dove in, you know, refreshed our memories on the whole history of the modern uh, bioethics construct that briefly runs from Nuremberg trials uh, to the Nuremberg uh, accord to Helsinki Accord to uh, um, the Belmont Report in the United States and to the common rule that exists in the Code of Federal Regulations. And we reviewed all that and then wrote a piece based on that uh, that is informed by what I understood about emergency use authorization status, which is that in short, all of these vaccine products, these genetic vaccine products that we have available here in the States and in Canada are remain experimental products. They are not authorized for marketing. They're being deployed under emergency use authorization, which is actually something that's rarely been used, is used with anthrax vaccines mm -hmm. by the FDA for uh, vaccination in a uh, epidemic or pandemic context. For instance, with the Ebola vaccine that I worked with quite a bit uh, for DOD, uh, that was uh, prosecuted under expanded use access, which allowed much more rigorous capture of adverse events and enabled the clear licensure for Merck based on that. So uh, the, the core bioethics here have three key components. This is solidly grounded. It's written into federal law. This is not subtle. Uh, you have the right, as, as someone who potentially would accept an experimental product, which is, just, which is what these are right now, the full disclosure of any adverse event so associated with that product and any adverse event risks, that's akin to the little package insert when you get a prescription drug or even Tylenol, that little white piece of paper with a small writing. And you, when you read all those things, you start at things, you say, oh, that's not too bad. And then you end up at things saying, holy moly, this is going to kill me. Um, and the, the ones at the top are the rare events and the, I mean, the, the common events and the ones down below are the uh, rare events that may or may not be related to the drug. Well, you're, you're owed the same level of disclosure about these vaccines. And I don't know if any, but have you seen the sheets that they give out for these, but they're blank. simply blank. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's not okay. Uh, and uh, point number two, so there, there has to be full disclosure of risk, can't be hidden. Number two, it has to be communicated in a way that you can comprehend it. What that generally means is that the disclosure of those risks and other aspects of that experimental context have to be written in about eighth grade language. And usually one is required for clinical research to undergo a process to verify 
that the people that are participating in the trial or the experimental research fully comprehend what those risks are and what the nature of the trial is. So you don't just toss it out. You usually have to verify that, in fact, people comprehend it. Third point is that the acceptance of the experimental product has to be fully voluntary, free and willing, uncoerced, um, and not enticed. I argue that all of this public messaging that we've all been bombarded with um, and now it's turned into these uh, really psyops, psychological operations-based messaging that's coming now down through various fact-checking organizations and media, uh, that all constitutes coercion. Uh, it's it's uh, putting pressure on you and your children and your aunt, your grandmother, and everybody else. And the most egregious example of this happened two days ago that I've ever seen, which is the federal government identifying 12 people. This is a point near and dear to your heart, Dr. McCullough, uh, and and labeling them as the dirty dozen. These are that these are people spreading misinformation, and that they are contributing to death. Uh, they are responsible for causing death because they are uh, disseminating what the government has determined to be um, uh, misleading information about vaccines. I, this is mind-boggling to me yeah. and to most of my colleagues. That if I can just in, you, put an inter interjection there, because uh, I'm number one on the list, but uh, it's, it's, this is a classic illustration of Orwellian doublespeak, because they are the ones that are causing the deaths as you're going to go on. Precisely. And, it's classic doublespeak. And this is old news. This is from a PDF that was created by um, an organization called CCDH, uh, Center for something opposing digital hate, when they're the ones that are promoting digital death. <laughs> and they're, they're funded, they spun up about less than two years ago, and they're funded by dark money that is undisclosed and clearly a front group for the nefarious organizations that are pursuing this. So I'm sorry for an interruption, but- just Well, you don't even have to go yeah, you don't even have to go to dark money. Um, it's it's out in the open. There's uh, this trusted news initiative led by the BBC, which overtly they they they're very proud of this. They've announced this in a press release from the BBC last fall that they have integrated uh, big tech, big media, um, and uh, and new media, uh, Facebook. Google, Microsoft, uh, et cetera, into an organization that was intended to control false narratives relating to elections, but they decided to turn it on what they perceived as false narratives for vaccines. Mm -hmm. And then, as if that wasn't enough, uh, the uh, Welcome Trust and uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have announced initiatives where they're, for instance, making block grants to Facebook, which is then funding these new pop-up fact-checker organizations um, staffed by, you, uh, some people have sent me the adverts. It's basically, hey, want to make some money? You can be a fact-checker too. Uh, sign up here. Uh, and that's the level of expertise they're bringing to this, but uh, they, they are employing methods to smear people and to manage uh, information that uh, 
people have available. And what happens is these fact checker organizations will make their pseudo fact check, like even what I experienced with Reuters, which was transparently false, their fact check. Um, but then the media will only re, will recycle the fact check. So then that, be, that moves up in the Google ranking and they're citing themselves. It is, uh, there's some slang for this type of behavior uh, that ends in the word jerk and we'll just leave it at that. Uh, but that's what's going on. And it's sponsored by the likes of Wellcome Trust and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They're quite proud of it. Yes, indeed. So let, let's continue with the uh, bioethics violations. And, uh, and I wonder if you could also focus with respect to that, which I, th there's two ones that seem particularly egregious. And one would be the direction, or the, the intention of using this gene intervention for, and it is, and you, you're an expert and probably one of the most qualified yeah, people in the world to call it that. Because there are others who, who have really uh, blasted me for misdescribing this, but it is a gene the, the German government has specifically outlawed the use of uh, um, uh, gene therapy-based vaccine as a term. It's a disallowed term. One can only call these vaccines. One can call them genetic vaccines or gene therapy vaccines by law from the German government. Yeah. So anyway, they're using these, they're intending, targeting these gene therapies to children who are at virtually no significant clinical risk and even worse, pregnant women who is, you know, an unborn child, which has radically increased the, the, the risk of spontaneous abortions in the first and second trimester. So if you can comment on that and the fact that there is by design, by intention, no it, um, system or process to capture all the side effects. It was somehow left out. Okay, so those are two big topic areas. Yeah. That that just hit. yeah. One, one involves the self-reporting of adverse events, and that relates to the story I was telling you about the difference between this vaccine and the Ebola vaccine. Um, and uh, the other one relates to these this push to for universal vaccination and uh, for vaccinating children, infants through adolescence and forced vaccination of young adults through a requirement if they wish to return to their university education and complete their degrees. This includes physician students, by the way. So a med student in his, his or her third year um, must accept vaccine now uh, or they won't finish their MD. So uh, that's that's uh, that sounds like coercion to me. Uh, and uh, so the the situation, as you say, uh, and I think it's important for the listenership to recognize that what we have is still an emerging understanding of what the adverse events are. So I could, if you want to go there, let's park it. But we, I could tell you the story of how the cardiotoxicity adverse event was recognized and it was not through official channels okay so so these there there is the appearance that the cdc is deliberately under reporting adverse events to the public and and there's appearance that there was uh manipulation of safety data analysis and reporting 
in the phase one, two, three clinical trials for some of these products by focusing on, I don't know if this is within your lexicon, uh, um, patients who had completed the study per protocol as opposed to those that entered the study um, as intended to treat. Those are, that's a subtle distinction, but what it means is that if you've only accepted one dose of vaccine under those clinical trial protocols and you have an adverse event and you decide to drop out or they gently suggest that you shouldn't take the second dose, that information about the adverse event that you received, which may, would have made you at even higher risk for the second dose, is lost, is not included in the safety analysis. This is a classic uh, way to manipulate safety data in clinical research, and it's strictly forbidden. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the FDA is onto that trick, and normally, if I was to do that, I would get slapped down immediately. Uh, why they allowed these large pharma to do this, and, and you can't claim that Pfizer didn't know what they were doing, sure. uh, is, is uh, um, beyond me, and I'll just leave it at that. The, in the case of the current data, now that we know about the adverse events associated with the cardiotoxicity in adolescents, and uh, the damage to the heart associated with that and the deaths associated with that. The, it, you, can, you can start, people can start to do calculations based on official CDC data. And those data are flawed. They probably under-report the true adverse event rate by about a hundredfold if you're relying on the VAERS database. That's historic information. Uh, but you can look at those data, and if you're a data scientist, you can do the calculations that the CDC is not doing and not disclosing to us about risk-benefit. And the ones that I've seen done by well-trained uh, and highly experienced actuarial specialists, people that work for the insurance industry that do this for a living because it's how they make their buck, um, uh, come out literally upside down it's important to understand the total number of deaths in children up to the age of 18 from COVID in the United States, according to CDC, from the beginning of the outbreak to the present is less than 380 people. And most of those, and similarly in the UK, most of those are people with significant pre-existing conditions. So if, if you're talking about your average healthy kid, the probability of death and disease from COVID is tiny. The probability of cardiotoxicity or death is also tiny. But there you got a ratio of tiny to tiny. And that ratio comes out suggesting that uh, there will be more lives lost to receipt of the vaccine in a universal vaccine campaign than there would be if all those kids were infected by SARS-CoV-2. This upside-down ratio appears to extend or very close to equivalence, at least up to the age of 30. Hmm. So, so we're in a position where the data that we have, admittedly flawed, and as you point out, there's, you know, is that by intent or what? It's kind of... From my standpoint, the data are the data. It's a, I can't smoke out what 
somebody within health and human services intended to do. But I can look at the data and others can. And uh, the data absolutely do not support a positive risk benefit ratio for vaccination of infants through young adults and based on any normal criteria. So then why are they doing this crazy stuff? Uh, it seems to all be wrapped around the axle of the need to justify universal vaccination. And I argue that this, this goes back, this is actually a mid-century policy. This goes back to the 50s and the 60s. And the polio vaccine campaign, uh, when the government established in World Health Authorities established a position that it was okay to lie, to withhold information about risk for vaccines because to have the full spectrum of information about the risks of vaccines would cause people to not accept vaccines. So um, shut up. We know it's best for you and uh, don't question us. It is a firmly authoritarian position. It is uh, intrinsically Orwellian. It's exactly the kind of stuff that George wrote about in his little book, 1984. But it was a warning to us uh, to the future from the past of how governments and authoritarian um, structures will behave. And they do behave uh, in China. China is very good about this, very efficient in controlling their population controlling information, controlling information on the internet. And some might say that the Western democracies look at China and say, hmm, I'd like some more of that because you're being really successful and I'd rather prefer to have a compliant population. So the, this is justified. I learned this recently. I don't read Plato on a routine basis. Uh, but in the philosopher Plato's writings, he speaks about the noble lie which is the idea that people in positions of authority or high status are justified in lying to the general public about for their own good. So this is much like daddy is going to tell you a lie or mommy uh, so that you will uh, do what they want you to do. Uh, and you shouldn't question it is the horror here. It is intrinsically authoritarian and paternalistic. But this was the way people thought about things mid-century. And I think what's happened is that this is perpetuated. Somebody found a, a, a clear and explicit statement to this effect that any in, in the 1984 Federal Register, that's kind of ironic, uh, in which they say the government posts in the Federal Register that any information about risks of vaccine that would be contrary to perceived need of vaccine uptake shall be suppressed. So it's clear federal policy going back to 1984 and beyond that this is the way they're going to handle things. And uh, they're going to handle it with the noble lie of saying, no, there's no risks and what we're doing is fully justified. Uh, and that now, I think, has it's, it's moved through time. It's kind of standard CDC and HHS policy to do this during outbreaks for vaccines. But now it's run into this whole new world where people expect to be able to access information efficiently and transparently. And, uh, and on the other hand, the government has these amazingly powerful tools 
with social media and media management that they've never had before. Mm-hmm. So they're the size of the hammer that the government has to impose their will on us and, and try to manage the words that we use and the thoughts that we can think has become enormously powerful. And I don't think we have to go to imagining some grand conspiracy at Davos between uh, certain individuals. I think this is kind of an emergent phenomena of the intersection of, of old school thinking about information management and new school capabilities and technologies. And I think the CDC, HHS, WHO, and Wellcome Trust, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, et cetera, et cetera, have just grossly misread the population, certainly in the United States. And so now we're in a position where before, according to Del Bigtree, if you can believe that, uh, that people, there was about one to 2% of people that self-identified as anti-vaxxers. And we're now up north of 40%. And clearly we have about 40 to 50% of the population that are just dug in. They're not gonna accept these genetic vaccines. And, uh, and clearly based on the messaging and the facial expressions of Tony Fauci and others that we're seeing in these, and, and the action, you know, think about, think this sir. The White House finds it necessary to have a special group uh, to identify and target 12 American citizens for what they believe to be vaccine disinformation and to make a big public press announcement about it. I, you know, don't they have anything else to do? Uh, uh, it seems like the world has got bigger problems than Dr. McCullough, but what do I know? Uh, so um, I, I, the whole thing is, is mind bending. And for a lot of people, including many Europeans are really lit up over this. Uh, They remember, you know, European intellectuals are very aware of the dynamics that happened in Germany in the 1930s. And uh, they are proper pissed and very radicalized over this massive media management and government authoritarian messaging that's coming down. And, uh, I think this could be a turning point in in a lot of things. Now, I, I I've gone on at length. I apologize. Uh, oh, no, no I problem. Should, I'm going to pause and let you ask the next question. Yeah, the uh, I th- I have a few questions because I have a partial disagreement with you, and who, I'm not sure who's right, but I you know it's a different uh, opinion, and I and I think it's only a disagreement because my suspicion, and I certainly could be wrong, is that you haven't don't have the data. Uh, you haven't been exposed to the data. So I'm, the question I have for you, uh, we, we talk a lot about George Orwell in 1984. Great book, very small. But there's a much bigger book. It's 1,200 pages or close to it. It's called Atlas Shrugged. And I'm wondering if you've ever read it. <laughs> of course I have. Okay, and, good. Um, then I, you- I, posted, I posted, so I feel like I am John Galt in many yes. ways. And that may well, seem egotistical. But I, I posted the other day on Twitter, I feel like I'm some bizarre, living some bizarre hybrid. If, if you remember, probably you do, uh, as a physician, Sinclair Lewis's book, Aerosmith. Sure. It certainly had a big impact on my thinking as a young physician. I feel like I'm living some weird hybrid of uh, Fountainhead and Aerosmith, uh, both of which didn't have very pleasant endings. I mean, they ended up torturing John Galt in the end, uh, but uh, maybe it's partially because I channel the script of, of 
fountainhead subconsciously. Uh, uh, you know, I live on a farm. Mm-hmm. I've kind of opted out of society in some ways. I, I have a, a virtual practice that I consult uh, in my areas of specialty. I leave people alone. I try to stay below the radar. And then these set of events have thrust me into the limelight uh, inadvertently. And now I'm being subjected to uh, character assassination and many other tools uh, that are rather unpleasant. But what yeah, can I you mean, do? You can't. I, I'm actually reading it now for the first time, Atlas Shrugged, and you know, just I when I first heard your story, it was clear to me that you were one of the people, and there's many people who haven't read the book, but it's just in a, one of the best books you'll ever read, and there's no question, especially pertinent to this. That she, she was that book is 75 years old and it's very prescient of what's happening now even more so than 1984 but but people like you who are really unbelievably committed to doing hard work and identifying and providing benefit and value to society are targeted and and abused and it's just essentially ultimately you've just just got to escape and get out and what you sounds like you've practically done in your, your own life but um, where was I going with this? Uh, oh, the, what, what, the extension of this and what, what, what kind of tied together is you in other interviews have said you avoid discussing conspiracy theories because you, you prefer to take the high road and dismiss this as incompetence and groupthink. And it very well may be, but there is, there is some pretty powerful data I, points I, that suggest that otherwise. I, I, I'm not saying there isn't sneaky stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, I I uh, I am intimately familiar with the power of large pharma to manipulate uh, governments. Uh, they have, for instance, Pfizer has purchased the entire data set from Israel uh, from Bibi. Uh, you know, their their Pfizer is acting globally with many many uh, major Western democracies. Uh, to have their way. Uh, and this is what big pharma does if it's given freedom to do so. It seems, and Pfizer has a long history of misbehavior, but I, I also work as an expert witness and I have intimate understanding of other large pharmaceutical firms in the vaccine space. And uh, there, there, there is a rich and long history of misbehavior. Uh, and uh, and here we have a situation where they have been given free reign. Uh, they've been absolved from, you know, literally, go forth, thou shall not be held liable, uh, and uh, and save the world. And and there, you know, if you give that kind of liberty and power to a global multinational and absolve them of any accountability. Uh, they will serve their stockholders. They they are not geared to serving the rest of us, whatever they may say in their press releases. And that's just how big pharma behaves. And we've chosen this model. And you face it in your practice in messaging having to do with alternative treatments and the importance of wellness, etc., those are those are not consistent with the take this pill, pay your price and shut up kind of business model. And uh, 
and I'm I'm not saying that that personally, I think that we that Mr. Gates and his foundation has done enormous irreparable harm to the world health community through his actions and his own personal biases. And and he has really distorted global public health. Uh and um at some point, there will be books written about this, and I'm sure an enormous number of PhD theses will be granted. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, we all got to live it. Um, and I'm not saying that it's not going on. I'm just saying that I have to stay grounded in data and facts. Um, in investigative journalism is not my business, <laughs> whatever yeah. you say. And uh, I'll leave that to those who are investigative journalists and can do that job much better than I can and get paid for it, which I'm not paid for. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a few other data points, too. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Marsha Angel, who was the former editor, actually the first female editor of the New England Journal, the most prestigious and the highest uh, rated journal in the world, even ahead of Science and Nature. And she was there for seven years and she wrote a book called the truth about the drug companies, how they deceive us and what they do about it. And there's, I'm sure there's nothing in there that you're not familiar with, but for those who want more, that's well documented from the primary editor of the most prestigious medical journal in the world, documenting all the- Which, which by the, in, in my opinion, during this outbreak has really fallen down again and again and again, and increasingly JAMA and uh, NEJM, and uh nature and lancet too you know, nature yeah yeah the lance yeah they're they're down i mean they might as well just roll it up and and call themselves the new york post at this point <laughs> you know the new york post for science and science magazine too you know you you have for me i only know this little window of of the world that i can touch mm -hmm. and um I touch the media in that world and I experience the media in that world. And what I experience is uh, a lack of integrity. Uh, investigative journalism is, is just seems to be shot. And uh, a lot of basically product placement. I, I was, let me share another anecdote about the media and how things are now. I used to work, um, as I had two jobs for the Aris Global TV Vaccine Foundation under Dr. Jerry Sadoff. So this was one of the early Gates-funded nonprofits. I also understand the non-NGO world. Pretty good. Uh, so I was serving as head of business development and project management for under Jerry. And uh, it was another one of those data points in the education of the young scientist when I learned that the way things are done and the way things were done at Eris was one goes out and hires these uh, hired gun journalists. In this case, a firm that included a journalist that had won the Pulitzer Prize to write favorable news articles about whatever agenda you wish to push and then get those placed in prestigious publications like, say, The Economist. And, uh, the way it works is your hired gun journalist writes this, does all the investigation, et cetera, finds their buddy and says, hey, you can take this and use this and claim it as your own work. And here's all the references and you can fact check and make sure that we did the right things. And then you get the credit for this. 
And apparently this is the way things are done. For me, it was, uh, you're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, wow, I couldn't imagine it. But that's apparently the new normal is uh, nobody has the time or money to do investigative journalism. And so what they do is basically regurgitate what are really product placement advertisements dressed up as journalistic articles. Yeah, typically paid for by the PR agencies who are paid for by the, the pharmaceutical companies and other large uh, corporate industry. industry. Yeah, I mean, that's it's part of the process of doing business. Yeah, it's, it's the it's the eco cycle. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, sorry to disabuse your uh, otherwise naive. I'm sure your audience is not naive with uh, your position. I'm being facetious. But this is the world we live in now is that information you know, Donald Trump, uh, whatever you think of him, the, the messaging about fake news has merit. Yeah. So getting back to historical precedents and, and one of the other criminals, and it truly is a reprehensible criminal, should be in prison the rest of his life, is Fauci, Tony Fauci. And uh, I've had the uh, opportunity to review a pre-copy of Bobby Kennedy's new book, which is the true Tony Fauci coming out and he, and he reviews many of the things I'm sure you're aware of because you were around when he was first starting. So, uh, but as you mentioned in other interviews, he's controls a lot of power. He's responsible. And I didn't realize this until I read Bobby's book for distributing $1 trillion, $1 trillion of funding since he's been in this position for the last 50 years trillion dollars. He's, and this goes to principal investigators, primarily who work for the drug companies. It all recycles around. I mean, he's got complete control. He's the godfather. And if he, if you come up with any position that's counter to his, you are literally destroyed and discredited. And I, I have, I've experienced it personally. Yeah. And I, I've been in his office. I've talked to him. I know what he's about. I've dealt with him. Remember, my story goes back to the very earliest days of AIDS. That's what I was going to, and, and Peter Peter Duisberg too, who, who you also destroyed, who was the, as I understand, the most prominent virologist in the world at the time, until he ran up against Fauci. I like I like to say Bob Gallo is a wicked, oh yeah. bureaucratic street fighter, a wicked fighter. I mean, he is just formidable. And if you don't believe it, watch and the band played on, and uh, from HBO. Uh, not not I don't have any HBO stock. There's no conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> Bob Gallo, I know personally also, and Bob is, uh, you know, not naive, simply put. No. Uh, uh, and um, basically, he and Tony got into a bureaucratic knife fight, and Bob was ejected from the NCI and got the consolation prize of the Institute for Human Virology in Baltimore. Uh, that, you know, Tony, you, you used the term godfather. I didn't. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> that's kind of how it works. And uh, the irony is they're both Italian. Yes, that's but, right. Uh, <laughs> so am I. So am I. <laughs> so, uh, but but Tony um, doesn't pull his punches, and and he's gotten quite uh, self confident. One might say uh, amazingly narcissistic, as revealed in the Washington Post FOIA emails, where he's quite transparent that it's okay for him to lie 
and and uh, say what he personally believes. So if you unpack that, he thinks it's okay to substitute uh, what we call in the pyramid of scientific evidence upon which to base clinical decision-making. He feels that it's okay to substitute expert opinion, his expert opinion, for facts. <laughs> and for the, um, for the greater good, uh, for the greater good, for the for the greater good, right? And and this gets so I'd like to I think this is a segue, if you don't mind, for me to sure. just hit the three high points of the double lie. Yes, absolutely. So I, I mentioned I mentioned that uh, our our old friend Mr. Plato uh, from back in the days of Greece. Had, had concocted this logic, and he's a little bit authoritarian in terms of his baseline wiring, uh, but uh, that, that it's okay for people of high status to lie to the general uh, population uh, for their own good. Uh, so what is it, what are the core elements of the lie? I think it's, I tried my best to distill them down to simple stuff. The first, it's got three parts to the main double lie, that the press and everybody defends uh, to the death right now. Number one, that it's in, the only way that we're going to recover economically and socially is if we reach herd immunity. We must reach herd immunity, otherwise everything just continues to be a, um, a problem. Uh, other words come to mind. Uh, and uh, second point, the only way to reach herd immunity is with vaccines. And the third point is all vaccines, the vaccines are perfectly safe. All three of those are demonstrably false, but they are defended aggressively by this whole superstructure of big tech and press that we just talked about through censorship and psychological operations, manipulation of words and media, and it goes on and on and on. But all three are false. Um, we, we, it's, it appears that there's been a concerted effort, and I uh, feel the pressure of the boot on my neck from time to time in my own team's work in drug repurposing. There seems to be a concerted effort to hinder advancement of repurposed drugs for whatever reason. No, I exactly, it is, that's exactly what Peter McCull McCullough experienced too, who's also one of the leaders uh, I, to do that. And, and you know that Peter, I, I was uh, very active as uh, editor on the Frontiers in Pharmacology special topic area for repurposed drugs and trying to get Peter's uh, initial manuscript published. Uh, and that and was right at the center of what happened there, that, that <laughs> little storm. Uh, so yeah, Peter, but for me, it's been, you know, I, I deal with it with uh, amazing FDA obstructionism that none of us have ever encountered in the group that I work with. And we're, we're working for the DOD. Uh, um, you know, this is not a fly-by-night startup. Just uh, the Department of Defense for people who don't deal with it. And not just the Department of Defense. The Defense Threat Reduction Agency Joint Science and Technology Office is where that's going. Uh, and we, just to illustrate, uh, we included an arm in our proposed trial that would be the drug combination we work with, famotidine plus celecoxib plus ivermectin versus famotidine plus celecoxib versus placebo and uh, in that trial design in the outpatient trial. 
and we have non-clinic we have uh, outpatient data that, uh, based on laboratory responses, this isn't you know thinking that uh, you know this person looked better or something. You know, strict laboratory evaluation criteria. The addition of ivermectin clearly appears to enhance the recovery of the lymphocyte fraction on top of modeling the celecoxib. We submitted all this to the FDA and the R&D, and the FDA came back and said, well, we don't, we're not going to allow you to go forward with anything involving ivermectin unless you perform in-cell culture experiments to demonstrate the mechanism of action of ivermectin. <laughs> now, in parallel, they allowed the NIH uh, uh, active group, active six trial, an out, another outpatient trial, to proceed with ivermectin without doing that. DOD looked at this and said, well, this isn't fair, right, or proper, but we're not going to fight it because it'll take us six to eight months. And we really don't want to get in a knockdown drag out with the FDA because they will retaliate. They're another one that retaliates. But we just dropped there. And then we, we did everything that they wanted, submitted in our letter. And every time you give a response, they have it kicks the can down the road another 30 days. Uh, and so we waited our 30 days. And on the last day, we get back a response letter that says, well, we have other concerns that we didn't tell you about before, and now you're going to have to fix these things. Okay, so we address <laughs> those things. And in our letter, another 30 days, we get another letter. No, no, no. That's uh, okay, fine. But now we have got other things that you've got to do. <laughs> and so we got to respond to all those. And another 30 days. Now, that letter just went in a few days ago. So we'll see in another month whether they kicked it down the can, the can down the road again. But this is the kind of gaming that's going on, and it's going on with the FDA, let alone, I mean, with the Department of Defense, let alone Steve Kirsch or um, somebody at a company that might want to be sponsoring ivermectin trials uh, for their own commercialization purposes. This is just bizarre behavior. We've, the people around me are seasoned uh, professionals, you know, veterans in biodefense and drug development. We've never seen anything like this in our lives. So there's, there's bizarre behaviors that seem to be blocking repurposed drugs. Why does that matter? Some people that are conspiracy oriented would say, well, if we had repurposed drugs that were safe and effective for outpatient treatment, then the risk benefit ratio for vaccines gets a little more tenuous for some of those groups. And of course, the guiding principle is that everybody has to get vaccinated. It's like a article of truth. So we have alternative drugs, despite all that, thank heavens for the emerging economies. And uh, even though they can't get their stuff published in the New England Journal, because it's impossible to publish stuff on repurposed drugs these days, yeah. just about, um, you know, ivermectin does seem to show uh, efficacy and safety. It's the safety database for the drug is enormous. Uh, it's 40 years long. One of the safest drugs out there. You know, yes, you can dose it at levels that will be toxic. And I really don't advise you to go to southern states and buy cattle ivermectin and drink it. Don't do that. Okay, that would be stupid. I wouldn't give iver cattle ivermectin to my horses, let alone my dogs. Just don't do it. But when pressed about what are the safety risks of ivermectin that are prompting all of this pushback, I think the FDA, the FDA or the CDC could identify two cases. Uh, so that it's just it's bizarrely disproportionate 
Likewise, the manipulation of information about hydroxychloroquine, which is still being used in China, uh, and many of these other agents, fluvoxamine, the barriers to use of that, uh, on Lucas, there's many others that are showing uh, utility for patients with certain uh, response profiles and even in long COVID. So the, the thesis that we have to have vaccines, we have to get herd immunity mm -hmm. to go back to normal um, isn't true. No question. The thesis that we have to use vaccines to get to herd immunity is also not true, demonstrably. The vaccines don't protect from infection, virus replication, and spread. They protect for death and disease to, to a significant extent with the initial viral strains. And now the data is coming in suggesting not even so good for that in some cases, say with Delta, say with some of the British and uh, um, some interpretations from uh, the Israeli data. So, so the va vaccines don't protect us from infection. They don't protect us from replication. They may be partially protective, but they're not gonna get us to sterilize, to um, herd immunity. The only way that I can see that we get to herd immunity is with natural infection, and it's kind of live with the virus. The good news is the long history of viral diseases once they cross into a new host is that over time they tend to get less pathogenic and more infectious. And there's signs that that's already happening. And the last part of the lie that um, the vaccines are perfectly safe, well, that's kind of been blown out. Uh, and, and now it's snowballing because it used to be that physicians would, were really reluctant to even report adverse events. And the public was given all this messaging that everything is perfectly safe. And now those are no longer tenable. We have Guillain-Barre, the classic autoimmune uh, leading indicator for vaccines. There's a lot of data suggesting antiplatelet antibodies. We have thrombocytopenia. We have uh, ITP. Uh, we have thrombocytopenia with um, thrombosis. We have central venous, uh, cerebral venous thrombosis, pulmonary emboli, uh, myocardial effects. Uh, these bizarre alterations of menstruation in women, uh, the potential, as you mentioned, of uh, uh, spontaneous AB in trimester one and two, uh, these odd histories of postmenopausal women that suddenly start cycling again. Uh, there's, it's just the list is, is going bigger and bigger and bigger. So, uh, the, the, the lie that the vaccines are perfectly safe is no longer supportable. And um, now I've finished that little diatribe. I'll pause. Thank yeah, you again for letting so, me talk. Yeah, so many, so many things. Um, I, I guess there's two, two, thing, two points I wanted to mention. One was uh, conspiracy and to dive a little deeper on that. But before I do that, I wanted to talk about the uh, efficacy statistics that were generated from the original uh, phase one and two, th phase two trials, I believe, which was quoted to be about 95%, 95 to 93%. But I'm wondering if you can comment on the fact that this was the relative risk reduction, and it wasn't redu reduced from getting infection, clearly, as we're seeing now, people getting infected who've been vaccinated. It's re redu re reduction in 
severity of symptoms. So, but when you look at the absolute numbers, and I give you the, I'm sure you have read them, but the, when you look at the relative, the absolute risk, it's like less than 1%. So because- I'm, I'm with you. And also, by the way, the, the data the, from the, the dexamethasone recovery trial. It's a trick they, they use on yeah. statin drugs. So um, these, this, these, the data flaws in these trials uh, and the underlying data, the full disclosure of the underlying data and how they were calculated and interpreted is subject to uh, legal actions right now. And um, this will come out. And it, it certainly has the appearance on face that not only the safety data that I alluded to this neat little trick of the difference between intent to treat and per protocol, these are insider baseball terms, but they allow you to really twist the dials on the safety data. There seems to all, I agree that there, there is the appearance of some very creative accounting on the, on the part of the efficacy signals. And normally, you know, it, in retrospect, normally uh, one, I've never seen efficacy for disease and death from a vaccine at these levels. I, I don't recall ever having seen that, even in monkey studies. <laughs> it's, it's like when, when they first came out, we were all kind of like, wow, um, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> Never seen that before. Uh, and um, uh, now now it kind of is leaking out that, uh, well, there's some pretty creative accounting going on. And uh, and then then in this this I'm sure you're familiar with these terms, the difference between efficacy and effectiveness. Sure. So efficacy, just for your readers, your listenership that isn't uh, clinical trial specialists and docs, efficacy is is what you measure in a structured clinical trial. Effectiveness is what you measure in the general population. So the information that's coming out now epidemiologically is effectiveness data. It's all comers. It's everybody's got vaccine. Efficacy data is highly is is really kind of contrived because when you write a clinical protocol for a clinical trial, you carefully exclude certain types of people and include other types of people. And what that results in is a biased sample. And you can be really creative in how you define your inclusion and exclusion criteria to skew how the results go in the resulting analysis. And there are many other ways, creative ways to do this. Now, normally the FDA is pretty wise to all this stuff because they've seen it for decades and they know how to, to call BS on it when it happens. FDA, for some reason, I can't imagine, seems to have been asleep through this whole review process. And uh, that that is, going to have a long-term blowback. Uh, there's already, I think the Atlantic Monthly wrote an article about the FDA um, melting away. It's it, the ability of the, the FDA that we thought we had, um, you know, based on the whole history of thalidomide and everything else, this eagle eye 
carefully protecting the public, um, it has been deeply compromised uh, by this process of regulatory capture. And the you know the game here, I, I live where I live, so I can drive up to D.C., but I don't have to be in D.C. Uh, and I've got many buddies that are in regulatory affairs that do the, the game. And, and the way it works is you work for the FDA for about five or six years, and then you leave. You've got your chit. You know, I'm, I'm an ex-FDA guy. And you become a consultant for the pharmaceutical industry, and you join places like Biologics Consulting Group, which is currently headed up by the former head of the uh, vaccines branch of the Center for Biologics and Research, Research and Development, Norm Baylor. And the way that whole ecocycle works is that, you know, once you've been an insider, I play this game myself to some extent, you know, you can call up your buddies and get information and guidance and comments and stuff that the average Joe can't get. It, it, is, it is very much a ecosystem. Uh, where they're just like with Congress and congressional aides and White House staff and all that kind of stuff, there's kind of this revolving door uh, between industry and the regulators. It, USDA is the worst, in my opinion, with uh, you know years and years and years of leadership from Monsanto. Uh, but uh, I'm sure your your uh, Dr. McCall is. Uh, constituency must fully understand what I mean when I reference uh, Monsanto in all of its various ways. But uh, this is the case with the pharmaceutical industry abundantly, is there is, is close and integral ties with this agency that has the dual task of both promoting the pharmaceutical industry and regulating it. And you kind of can't do both. And the people that the bureaucrats that do this, many of them, not the career ones, but many of them do this revolving door business because it's like going to a good postdoc lab or getting your PhD at Harvard or something like that. You spend your four or five years at FDA, you graduate, and you go make the bucks. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, you know, like, or being a Supreme Court clerk or whatever. It's well, that's well, how you, these things work. You have insider information. So what's the typical salary increase from an FDA position to, in, to industry consultant? Well, these guys are often working in the um, between 80 and 120 range. Mm -hmm. So the government pays about 60 to 80 percent of market rate. And then when they get out, they can easily pop up to uh, 300, 400 uh, annually and, uh, you know, 350 to 500, 600. I know. Some consultants that uh, work for BCG that make 600 an hour. So it's it's uh, you know the pharma doesn't hesitate to pay those bills. They you can afford it. Cash. <laughs> yeah, they have plenty of cash. And the same ecosystem now cycles. You know, pharma has done a great job capturing capturing our federal legislature pretty much. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm talking about Senate and House. Uh, we're we're in a situation. And that, like with a lot of things, this was pioneered in the States, but it's now been turned on the world. Yes, and, uh, you know, we're, we're um, I do believe this is a moment in history where we have a choice. 
and it gets down to those bedrocks. I think that's why so much of the conservative press are just lit up like crazy of this, is um, this is kind of bedrock Bill of Rights stuff, you know? Uh, and a skeptic might say that leadership in many of the Western democracies look at China uh, with envy. <clears throat> and and they would like some of that. Uh, and I think as as a population, we we you know us middle class folks and some yes I have a farm and I and I have fancy horses but they pay for themselves uh, and that's you know thirty forty years of of running small farms that taught me how to do that. Uh, I'm not I'm not making a bunch of money off of that and I don't have a great big bank account. So. Folks like us, and like I said, I used to be a laborer. I was a farmhand and uh, a carpenter. And uh, so for those of us that work with our hands and our minds and, uh, you know, grew up with the idea of a meritocracy, we're now in a different world. And and do we want, do we want to uh, take a moment in and really recognize that issues like freedom of speech and thought and uh, integrity of person and those kinds of concepts, or do we want to live in that world or do we want to live in an authoritarian world and reap the benefits of uh, this authoritarian uh, business model, really, that the People's Republic of China uh, operates under? And, uh, and uh, you know, shut up and get along. I I I don't want to live in that world. I'd rather be, you know, be here on the farm, get my hands dirty, living with my wife and my horses and my dogs, and not have the big uh, apartment in uh, Manhattan. And I guess this makes me a little bit like John Galt. Yeah, or in Galt's Gulch. Back around. Galt's Gulch. So, <laughs> so we kind uh, of live on Galt's Gulch. Yeah, guest house up on the hill. You're welcome to come see us anytime. Well, thanks for the invitation. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think that you highlighted the danger very succinctly. It is the progressives don't that fail to understand that as socialism becomes mo more and more severe, the tyranny becomes worse, and you essentially progress to something like China or even worse, North Korea, where millions of people are being tortured and killed and starved to death. I mean, and all the personal freedoms are gone. There is just no liberty. And it's a foreign, it's not even in the language. It's, they do not know what that, that word is. That's, that is, that is the new speak, right? Um, and the ministry of truth. And that's, that's for a lot of us. And as I mentioned, a lot of Europeans are really worked up over this. Uh, maybe they're more woke than uh, many Americans are, but the, Trusted News Initiative is about as Orwellian as you can get. And it, it basically is reinforcing that if you don't use the language that the World Health Organization uses and the CDC or whatever your national health authority, you will not be allowed to speak. And, and you will have to use and think the language and the thoughts that we want you to use and think. And we can say, oh, it's all for the good or, you know, the better good because everybody needs to get vaccinated. Well, I think that's false. 
Um, but you may not, that you're right. Uh, but don't force me to do something just because you believe it. But the, the bigger picture, as you point out, is that what next? You know, if, if we can do it for this, well, maybe we can do it for other things. And maybe it's okay. Maybe it's, it's for the greater good. <laughs> uh, um, and, uh, and if there is ever a slippery slope, that's it. Uh, and, and it's kind of a wake up moment, you know, this is a red pill moment, my friends, uh, you, you want to live in the matrix uh, or not. Uh, it's a pretty good metaphor. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So I know you've got responsibilities to take care of your horses on your farm. And I really uh, am beyond grateful for you sharing your valuable time with us and enlightening us with your perspective, which is really amazing. And uh, just very grateful for you sharing the time and uh, people want further information. Uh, I suspect you're going to be continuing your Twitter feed and, and it's really, really good. We take a lot of the uh, your posts and put them in our on our blog, our RSS blog. So oh, thank you. That's yeah, kind. That's good. And 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 I, I I just want to give a shout out to your courage, and uh, your leadership, and um, and our common cause. In in uh, whether we agree on this adverse event or that adverse event or this data set or that data set. I got, I will go to the trenches to fight for our ability to have that discussion. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how science has to be, right? We have to have that dynamic tension or we go right down. It is the road to hell and it's called that's, group think. Yeah. And that's where we're at now. That is what yep. the current system is. It, we've almost everyone dismisses science because it's been so bastardized. But if the science was being done like you understand and have applied your whole career, it wouldn't be a problem because that's there is great value in properly applied science, but it's not being done that way. It's corrupted and conflicted. So thank you. I, I think it's it's systemic. And the problem you mentioned about the NIH money, uh, it it is intensely corrupting and has corrupted modern academe. And, and as uh, Dr. Bridal has shown explicitly, modern academia is a very sick and twisted place in my opinion. And uh, we, that is in part because of the influence of money. What a surprise. <laughs> and there's a few courageous people like yourself and I would certainly put Peter McCullough and that group who, you know, have the courage and the bravery to stand out despite what the significant repercussions are to your personal life. So thank you for everything you're doing and will continue to do. The, the world needs people like you, really does. Thank you're you, sir. Bird. And, uh, and you also. So it's been a pleasure and hope we get a chance to talk again. All right. Well, thanks a lot.